In case you haven't been paying attention for the past uh, 20 minutes or so, today's the first Sunday of Advent, so happy Advent again. And as has been our tradition, uh, we light a candle for Advent each week uh, leading up to the celebration of Christmas. And so, I don't know if you can really see our, uh, what Drew called a menorah, our little Advent candelabra here. Um, but it's a circle, and the circle on the Advent, uh, technically called an Advent wreath, represents God's never-ending love that he showed to us by sending Jesus to earth. The four candles um, around the outside here represent the four Sundays before Christmas Day, each one representing promise, light, love, and hope. The three purple candles represent the royalty of Jesus as the Son of God and the King of our lives. The one pink candle represents the joy of having Jesus in our lives. And then the light at the center, the the um, white candle uh, is the Christ candle. It represents the purity of Jesus. And the light that the candles give remind us that Jesus called himself the light of the world. And so today we light the first purple candle that symbolizes the promise of the coming king. All right, well, we're excited to be able to celebrate, uh, celebrate, ad, celebrate, celebrate Advent uh, together starting today. Uh, and because we are in this season, as we have done the past several years, we're taking a break from our uh, normal sermon series through the book of Exodus this year, of course, to focus on Advent. Um, and of course, Advent, uh, if, uh, if you missed it earlier, if you haven't been around for that, or if you haven't, maybe you've never been in a church that celebrated Advent, is the period of joyful anticipation in the weeks leading up to Christmas. So it's usually basically the month of December, the four weeks before Christmas. And uh, whether or not you have familiarity uh, with Advent, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, uh, it's something that we like to prioritize here at Vintage um, to call us to remember what is important Um, and to acknowledge uh, that this season is meant as a time of preparation to, uh, as the song says, let every heart prepare him room uh, for the celebration of the birth of Christ. Uh, The word Advent, uh, not really in our daily vernacular, simply means coming. Uh, And so we hope through this Advent series uh, that you will be prepared to celebrate the wonder of the coming of Jesus, both the first time in the manger in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, but also uh, as we look forward to the second Advent, Jesus' return, when he will come and consummate his victory, and he will make all things new. Um, And so Advent is both a period of remembrance and of anticipation. We'll talk more about that a little bit in a moment. Uh, This year, uh, these four Sundays of Advent, we decided to spend some time looking at the story of the birth of Jesus, surprise, but specifically looking at it through the lens of some specific biblical figures. Uh, Justin tells me that using the word characters implies fiction, so we're going to go with biblical figures, not biblical characters, because it's true. Um, And uh, we're going to look through it, look, look at this familiar story through some different perspectives. And we plan to do that by, of course, looking at what the scriptures say uh, about these individuals and how they wrote about the birth of Christ, but also by looking at the context in which these individuals lived, uh, looking at their stations in life, you know, what they, what they were doing at the time that they wrote uh, about the birth of Christ, and also what the Messiah would mean for them in their context. Um, and so we decided to name this series uh, Unto Us, Uh, which comes from that uh, Isaiah passage that we just looked at, for unto us a child is born. 
Um, and so uh, today we're going to look at that passage uh, in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the birth of Christ from the perspective of the prophet Isaiah. And then next week, uh, Stephen's going to preach for us, and he's going to look at this same story through the lens of Joseph, uh, who, of course, is Mary's fiancé at the time, and who also became the eventual adoptive father of Jesus. Then the next week, uh, Bryce is going to preach from a rare point of view. Uh, He's going to preach from the point of view of King Herod, uh, the evil king who basically committed genocide like like Pharaoh did uh, in Exodus that we looked at earlier this year in order to try to kill Jesus. And then the Sunday before Christmas, uh, Morgan's going to preach for us, and he's going to look at this familiar story of good tidings of great joy that was delivered to the shepherds near Bethlehem. But he's going to look at the story from the perspective of the shepherds themselves. Um, And so we hope that doing this, looking at this familiar story through different lenses will help us to be able to appreciate the story with fresh affection. After all, it's something we are all very familiar with. Uh, We hope that it will give you a renewed sense of awe for how magnificent this story of the incarnation of God is. And we hope that it will also, as the Valley of Vision prayer we often say around Christmas says, that it will help us see that when deity and humanity were infinitely apart, He united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. I mean, this is a wonder that the uncreated God would take on human flesh to ransom our wicked souls. And we shouldn't be able to get over that. And so hopefully uh, this series will help you uh, renew your all at what God has done for us in sending Christ. So today we're going to dive into, uh, again, the prophetic book of Isaiah uh, that was written around 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Um, and, you know, it's easy to just throw out, like, sums of years like that. That's a really long time. I mean, the United States has been a country for, what, not even 250 years? Um, and, like, the pilgrims were, like, 400 years ago. So, I mean, 700 years is a long time. Um, and we're going to see how Isaiah's prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, 700 years later, will give us a unique perspective to dwell on and to marvel upon this familiar story uh, together. Now, the reason why uh, Isaiah's perspective is a little bit unique, especially compared to the way that we normally read the Christmas narrative, and even the way that we're going to look at it it over the next few weeks, is because Isaiah's perspective is forward-looking, right? He's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now, often, we tend to read the Bible sort of backwards. Uh, That is because we know that the most important sequence of events in the Bible— And for that matter, the most important sequence of events in all of human history is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. And so we tend to look at Scripture through the lens of that knowledge, right? We already know what Jesus did for us, and so we look at all of Scripture knowing that. And we should look at Scripture with that knowledge because all of Scripture points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus He's the center point of it all. If we miss Jesus, even in the Old Testament, we miss the entire point of the Bible. However, we also have to realize that those who lived before the incarnation of Christ, meaning everyone who lived during the thousands of years that the Old Testament covers, for them, the precise details of Christ or of God's plan to send Christ and redeem the world, those, those, those details were not crystal clear for them. Now, they did 
or excuse me, they did not have the benefit of four gospels chronicling the life and words of God's Son. But they did have the revelation of God. They did have types and shadows uh, that, that pointed to God's plan to redeem. And they even had the knowledge that God's plan was to save was by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately in a coming Savior alone, who we know to be Christ. And I believe that they were saved by Christ alone. But their knowledge of God's plan was certainly incomplete. And so, while we shouldn't be able to read the Old Testament without seeing Jesus all up in it because He is there, we can learn a great deal by looking at what it must have been like for the hearers of the prophets and for the readers of the Old Testament to look forward to God's plan before the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and the baby lying in a manger and the good tidings of great joy were proclaimed. And so if we can, let's try to take away that knowledge and think through the the perspective of Isaiah. And I think that'll help us maybe see things a little differently. Because it helps us to read with sort of a sense of uncertainty, a sense of incompleteness. And reading in that way can help us to get a sense of what Advent is and how Advent is different than Christmas. Now, we kind of lump them together because they're, they're leading to the same thing. But Advent is a period of waiting, waiting for the birth of Christ, a period of anticipation. But also anticipation isn't fun all the time, right? So it's a period maybe of groaning, of mourning in lonely exile as uh, that, the song that Stephen uh, played for us during offering was, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So Advent, in some ways, uh, is like pregnancy. And bear with me through my analogy here. Advent is a time of hopeful waiting. But it's also sometimes a time of painful contractions. Often a time of, of sore, sleepless existence. And many, I guess i got a lot of nods in here. I just know secondhand. But Advent is supposed to be like that. A time of strange tension between the anticipation of the joy that is to come, but the pain, the, the, the groaning that is now. And so, to extend the analogy, possibly to a ridiculous extent, Isaiah then is like the Braxton Hicks contractions of Advent. He's the harbinger of this coming birth. And so I hope that, uh, that we will feel that. Uh, John Piper said something like, and I should have written this down, uh, it was in my Facebook memories today, uh, that Christmas is, what did he say, Uh, an indictment before it is joy. Basically, you have to feel the need for Christ before you can fully appreciate the coming of Christ. And so I hope Advent does that for us. I hope looking through the lens of Isaiah does that for us. And by the time we get to Christmas, man, we'll be ready to celebrate the birth of the Messiah. Now, Isaiah's message is summed up in his name. Uh, Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation, or the Lord saves. And we've seen these names important a lot of times uh, in various passages of Scripture that we looked at. Um, Let's see here. Where do we go? No, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. So, yeah, Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. Now, a little bit about the book of Isaiah. According to the ESV Study Bible, the central theme of the book of Isaiah is God himself, who does all things for his own sake. Isaiah defines everything else by its relation to God, whether it is rightly adjusted to him as the gloriously central figure in all of reality. 
God is the Holy One of Israel, the one who is high and lifted up, but also who dwells down among the contrite and lowly, the sovereign over the whole world, whose wrath is fierce, but whose cleansing torch atones for sin, whose salvation flows in endless supply, whose gospel is good news of happiness, who is moving history toward the blessing of his people and the exclusive worship due him. He is the only Savior, and the whole world will know it. To rest in the promises of God is his people's only strength. To delight themselves in his word is their refreshing feast. To serve his cause is their worthy devotion. But to rebel against him is endless death. Now the prophet Isaiah lived during a tumultuous time for God's people when the kingdom of God's people was divided into two between the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And of course, all of God's people are Israel, but when the tribes split, that's how they referred to them, the Judah and Israel. Now during Isaiah's life, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria. And so much of Isaiah's prophecy deals with warning Judah the, the other half, or not half, but the other part of God's people, that if they did not repent, they would face a similar fate to Israel. And ultimately, they did uh, when Babylon captured them later on. So much of Isaiah's message is a warning of God's judgment and of God's exile. But also, much of Isaiah's message deals with God's promise of restoration. And of course, this restoration would come to, through the air uh, to David's throne the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so I want to look at this familiar messianic prophecy passage from Isaiah today. And instead of just glossing over it, we're going to look a little deeper at what it would have meant from Isaiah's point of view and his hearers for the coming Messiah to be described in this way. So I want to recap a couple of verses that Summer read for us. Uh, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. It says, For to us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do do this. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the words of Isaiah that shed light on Christ for us. God, that you uh, sought out your people who dwelled in darkness, Lord, to give them a great light. Lord, to shine on them the light of salvation through the anointed one, the Messiah, the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel. God, would you show us what Isaiah meant when he declared these things about Christ today? God, and when looking at uh, this familiar passage, this familiar story, through a fresh perspective, renew the affections of our hearts. God, that we would stand in wonder of what you have done for us. Lord, reveal yourself to us clearly from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today it is my great hope that the beauty of Christ is magnified for us. And that we would stand in awe of him more as a result of what we look at together. Charles Spurgeon once said in a sermon about this passage, said, there is no seeing Jesus except by his own light. He is the door 
But no man opens that door except Jesus himself. For he opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man opens. He is the lesson, but he is also the school teacher. He is both key and lock, answer and riddle, way and guide. He is the one to be seen, for we are to look to him, but it is by him that we are enabled to see, for he gives sight to the blind. Let us then, dear friends, if we really desire to understand that most excellent of all sciences, the science of Christ crucified, entreat the Lord himself to be our rabbi and beg to be allowed to sit with Mary at the master's feet. May this be our prayer, that we may know him. And may this be our desire, that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For to know him is life eternal, and to be taught by him is to be wise to salvation. Indeed, may that be our prayer today, that we may know him, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. For to know him is life and salvation. So back to Isaiah. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And in ancient Jewish culture, we know that names had meanings. And Bryce has, I think, even mentioned recently that there seems to be a recurrence of that in our culture now. So again, Isaiah's, mean is Yah- Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And we see this other places in the Bible. Back when we went through the book of Zechariah, we learned that his name means the Lord remembers we discuss how Moses' name, uh, back when we started Exodus, means to draw out of water. And how his son's names had meanings. Gershom meant, I've been a soldier in a foreign land. Eliezer means, the God of my father was my help. And we see this all throughout, uh, specifically the Old Testament, but really all of the Bible. And so when Isaiah is speaking of the name of the coming Messiah, and his name shall be called... And he says that he will be mighty God, eternal father, etc. He is telling us about the characteristics of the Messiah to come in a prophetic manner. Now it's easy for us to gloss over these. Because number one, this is a familiar passage you may have read or or maybe even sung if you're a choir boy like me. Uh, But I don't want to gloss over these. I want to spend some time dwelling on what Isaiah meant. Verse 6 gives us four names of the Messiah. To describe his characteristics. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. It's a beautiful list that encapsulates much about who the Messiah would be. And what the Messiah would do. So let's dig a bit deeper into what Isaiah meant when he wrote these phrases. And hopefully in so doing we will be able to ponder anew the magnificence of the Messiah. So firstly, Isaiah tells us his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, what does it mean for the Messiah to be called a wonderful counselor? Well, one writer said this title should not be misunderstood as a reference to the coming Messiah's exceptional therapeutic counseling abilities, nor should the two words be divided into the separate designations wonderful and counselor, although they are in English. In the context of the ancient world of the Bible, to be called a wonderful counselor meant to be an acutely insightful warrior, capable of designing successful battle stratagems. And so I used to think as an admissions counselor, I was a wonderful admissions counselor, but I was not an acutely insightful warrior. I do not have uh, insightful therapeutic counseling abilities. And that's not what we're saying of Jesus here. 
Now, the Hebrew word for wonderful means something that is uncommon, something outside of the ordinary, or something that is beyond our ability to comprehend. So this isn't like a flippant use of the word wonderful, like we might describe a wonderful concert or a wonderful meal, or, you know, we use that the word kind of lost its weight for us. No, the, the way that Isaiah intended this word to be used, wonderful counselor, is beyond comprehension. Wonderful in a way that would blow our minds. When Isaiah described the Messiah as a counselor, he isn't speaking of a therapist or a a helper or an advisor. Now, when we think of counselors, we think of, uh, again, maybe those who are therapists or, I don't know why, you're not a therapist, I don't know why. Did that there. Uh, But we also speak of people seeking wise counsel when making decisions. We speak of elected officials having close advisors or counselors to offer knowledge and guidance on decisions. We even speak of seeking legal counsel when we need an attorney. But in ancient Israel, a counselor was more than that. A counselor was a wise king, an insightful warrior. Like Like Solomon, right? Solomon gave guidance to his people, and he was a counselor. Isaiah uses the word again, uh, the word counselor again, in Isaiah 28, 29, to describe the Lord. He says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The New Testament then confirms that the Messiah was indeed a wonderful counselor. John 2 says he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He's able to advise his people thoroughly because he is qualified in ways that no human counselor is. In Christ, Colossians tells us, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, including the knowledge of human nature. Jesus also knows what we are going through. He always knows the right course of action. He is the king of the universe who rules his people with absolute wisdom and leads them with perfect guidance. So the Messiah then then would be not just a wonderful counselor, but the infinitely great counselor with eternal and indescribably perfect wisdom, leading his people into perfect submission and perfect delight. Isaiah also tells us that uh, he would be called mighty God, And this might be the easiest one to gloss over because these are casual words for us. We say them all the time in worship songs and in prayers and whatever. Mighty God, what a mighty God we serve. Yeah, of course Jesus is the mighty God. Let's move on. No, no, no. What is radical about Isaiah's declaration that the Messiah would be almighty God is that he is boldly declaring that the Messiah, the coming anointed one, would not merely be a prophet. He would not merely be a messenger. He would not even merely be a wonderful counselor. But he would be the one and only almighty God himself. The Messiah would be mighty God, clothed in frail human flesh. Different from any other person who had ever lived or who will ever live. And Isaiah confirms that the Messiah, who would be called mighty God, was not some other God but the same one true God as Yahweh. Because in the very next chapter, Isaiah tells us, Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. 
Who does it say they're returning to? To the Lord. To the mighty God, Jehovah, the one true God. The Lord of Jehovah, the, the same God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The mighty God. The Messiah would be the almighty God. And there was only one God. So the conclusion here is obvious. The Messiah would not be a prophet or a messenger. He would be God himself. Other prophets in the Old Testament concur that Jehovah, this, this mighty God, is, is the one true God. Jeremiah, for example, pronounces, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of the fathers on the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Zephaniah speaks in similar terms when he says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. See, the mighty God that the prophets refer to is the same God Isaiah is referring to when he speaks of the coming Messiah. He is the living God. He is the one true God. He is the only God upon whom we are to call. He is the only Savior. Jesus, the Messiah, is not just king above kings or chief among prophets or just God-like, but he is mighty God himself. Isaiah goes on to tell us that Jesus, the Messiah, of course he doesn't know his name yet, would be everlasting Father. And this is perhaps the most confusing one in this list for an obvious reason, right? We know that Jesus is not the Father. If we know uh, the truth about the Trinitarian nature of God, Jesus is the Son, not the Father. So, should we just assume that Isaiah is confused about the Trinity because he calls the Son of God the everlasting Father? No. So let's discuss exactly what Isaiah means when he says that the Messiah would be called everlasting Father. Sam Storms, a pastor, says, The word father is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. What does a father do? What image is evoked by the word? I suggest that he has in mind the tenderness and sensitivity of a compassionate and affectionate father. It is the security and love he provides, as well as protection and provision. Jesus, therefore, is fatherly, father-like in his treatment of us. This is similar to what the psalmist had in mind when he said in Psalm 103, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So in this sense, describing the Messiah as everlasting father is a description of his fatherly character, not a confusion of the persons of the Trinity. But there's even more that we can learn from this phrase, everlasting father. Now, we've all heard the usage of the word father to describe the source of something or the preeminent cause of something, the founder of something. So, the father of our country would be George Washington, right? Socrates is considered the father of philosophy. Aristotle is known as the father of biology. Karl Marx is known as the father of communism. Walter Camp is the father of American football. And if you didn't know that, now you do. Walter Camp. So understood this way, father as founder, father as source. The Messiah being called everlasting father. Get, get this. If I've lost you, get this. 
The Messiah being called the everlasting Father means that He is the founder of eternity, the source of eternal life. As Hebrews 2 tells us, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And again, in Hebrews 5, 9, we're told He is the source of eternal salvation. This is what it means for the Messiah to be called Everlasting Father. He is the founder of salvation, the way to eternal life, the source of eternity. And Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other, name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isaiah also tells us that the Messiah would be called the Prince of Peace. Now what does this mean, Prince of Peace? Now remember, Isaiah prophesied during a difficult time. For God's people. A time that was defined by anything but peace for God's people. They were split up with part of the kingdom in captivity. And the other part of the kingdom soon to be in captivity. In fact, because of this continual cycle of rebellion and restoration that we see in the Old Testament for God's people. And really in our own lives today. God's people had rarely known what peace meant. They had rarely seen lives defined by shalom, the peace of God. And yet Isaiah tells them that one is coming who will establish peace that would have no end. Peace unlike anything they had ever known. And this would not just be a national or a political peace. Though yes, a day is still to come when the Messiah will establish eternal peace and all nations will come under His reign and rule. But the type of peace Isaiah is announcing here is peace with God. Like the angels who pronounced peace to the shepherds when they said, peace among men with whom He is pleased. See, in our sinful state, we don't have peace with God. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite. It tells us in Romans that we are enemies of God by default. But it also tells us that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we can be restored to a relationship of peace with God. And this isn't something that is fleeting. This is the deep and abiding shalom, the peace of God between our hearts and the Creator that cannot be taken away. It is the peace that the Bible tells us surpasses all understanding. This is what it means for Christ to work to be the Prince of Peace in our lives. So we're told that He would be the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. But elsewhere, Isaiah also tells us in Isaiah seven fourteen, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, of course, this is a familiar term for us too. We know what Emmanuel means. God with us. 
But church, this is not some isolated promise in Isaiah that's just recapped in Matthew. This is not something that just conveys one little aspect of who the Messiah would be. In fact, this theme, God with us, is a central theme of the whole of the Bible. And in fact, of the whole history of God's people. In various forms, this promise, I will be with you, has always been a promise of God to his people. This promise of the presence of God, both in joy and in pain, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, in life and in death, and in flame and in flood, God is with us. This is the continual confession about the nature of God all throughout Scripture. And I want to show that to you now. In Genesis 26, when Isaac wants to return to Egypt during a famine, God tells him, I am the God of Abraham, your father. So fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Later, when Jacob flees for his life from Esau, God promises, promises him in Genesis 28, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. As we saw several months ago, when Moses questions his ability to lead God's people out of Egypt, God says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Later, Moses dies, and Joshua assumes leadership of the people from Moses. And it says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, For just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is the continuous refrain throughout the Old Testament to God's people. As they prepare to enter the promised land, as Barak faces Sisera, as Gideon faces the Amalekites, to Saul as he prepares to become king, to David as God promises him a kingdom forever, to exiles as they face an uncertain future, to Jeremiah as he faces opposition and death, and to the discouraged community who had returned from the exile. We see this repeated throughout the Psalms as well. Psalm 46.7 tells us the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Then Isaiah also goes on to expound upon this promise in Isaiah 43, where thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel." your Savior. God is with His people. And then we arrive at Matthew in the New Testament, and Matthew tells us that the angel delivers the same promise to Mary, that she is carrying the promised Messiah in her womb. And he reminds her of these words that Isaiah spoke. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then, of course, Jesus dwelled among his people. He walked with them. He died for them. He was resurrected for them. And then at the very end of Matthew's gospel, this promise comes right back up. 
Jesus gives his followers a great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This very same promise, Emmanuel, God with us. And then we see the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. God is present with His people even now by His Spirit. So again, this isn't an isolated promise that God was with us when Jesus dwelled on this earth. No, God is with us now. God is with His people And then we see at the very end of the age when Christ returns to consummate everything, to to solidify his victory. In Revelation 21, we find these words echoing this very same promise for all of eternity. It says, Behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Praise God that he will dwell with us, and that he is with us even now. Charles Spurgeon said this of Emmanuel. Says Emmanuel, God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. Let him come to you suddenly, and do you but whisper that word, God with us. Back he falls, confounded and confused. God with us is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayers? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor own his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is eternity's sonnet. Heaven's hallelujah. The shout of the glorified. The song of the redeemed. The chorus of the angels. And the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. Church God is with us. And God will be with us for all eternity. How indescribably beautiful it is that the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace is Emmanuel, the Messiah, the God who didn't only come to dwell among us as the incarnate Son of God, but the God who is with us even now. So this Advent season, as we go about our celebrations May we remember that we don't just celebrate what has happened, but that God has a great promise to return, to make all things new, to dwell among us. May we rejoice in the wonder that God is with us because He is, church. He is. And He evermore shall be. Will you pray with me? God, we thank You for Your presence among us. God, there is no greater promise. God, thank you that you don't leave us as orphans. Lord, and even after you've adopted us, you don't leave us godless. Lord, for you yourself are with us by your spirit. God, thank you uh, for the promise of Messiah. 
God, that he came. Lord, that he lived a perfect life. Lord, that he died a sacrificial death. Lord, and he achieved a victorious resurrection. God, but that he also gave us a commission to proclaim that death and resurrection and life in him until you return. God, thank you that you empower us to do that. And God, may dwelling upon what you have done for us and what you will do for us spur us out to proclaim the good news that you save. God, we thank you for the hope of Advent. Lord, may it make us long for you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, may we long for you. God, but thank you until you return. God, you dwell with us even now. I mean, that be our hope. God, thank you for your love for us and that you demonstrated it so clearly in the sending of your son, God incarnate, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And it's his, in his perfect name, Lord, the name of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace that we pray. Amen.